Thank you, Elder Roy. I have to tell you something. I have a confession to make as we get started. I, I wish worship hadn't been so powerful. <laughs> it's incredibly distracting. There's a breaking in my favor when I praise. I, we heard a sermon today. I can't even begin to tell you what that meant for me as we were lifted up. In the worship team, there's not enough words. It, praise the Lord for what... It, let's just give God a hand. Praise Him for that. that And there was a question when I was here earlier that maybe the drums were too loud, but I'm going to say the drums were just right. <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> well, I'm honored to be here with my PT family. I, uh, you have been a place that has literally rescued me in life, and I'm so grateful to be here. I am grateful uh, for Bishop Brian and Lady Carmen for the years we've known him. I am praying for restorative time off, but you need to know that I got a text from Bishop Brian at 6 a.m. this morning, so we need to pray harder for time off. <laughs> I want to thank Elder Roy and Elder Anita, um, Elder Roy for his guidance and friendship, and I have to say for uh, way too much laughter, which feels a little out of control at times, uh, but I'm grateful for that. And of course, special honor to Mother Green. I... She has been, for me and my family, a mom, and that has meant all the world. So I'm grateful, grateful to be here. I'm also grateful for my beautiful wife, Ellen, who is here. Um, we, uh, we were married 41 years this year. Yeah. That, um, that automatically qualifies her for sainthood, so everything now is free. Doesn't matter what else happens. We're going to read from Scripture today. We're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians 9. And I'd like you to follow along either in your own Bible or on a screen you have in front of you or on the screens that are up above here. So uh, I'm going to start by reading from Galatians 2, verses 19 through 21. Follow along with me. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 23, follow along carefully. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but an under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. 
I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word that comes and cuts into our hearts and exposes us to the power of your spirit. We pray today that you would use your word to surround us, to shape us, to guide us, to cause us to be your people in a new way today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Last night, Ellen and I were at a hip-hop concert. That is a phrase that a year ago I never thought would be coming out of my mouth. And you're probably wondering what we were doing there. And that's the same question we asked last month when we were at the Wonder Bar in Austin going to a hip-hop showcase to listen to Christian rapper Caleb McCoy perform in a secular setting filled with young black men and women. And I can positively say and affirm that we brought age and ethnic diversity to that setting and had a great time doing it. I'm sharing this with you because Bishop Brian and Elder Roy asked me to share with you things that are happening in my life, the research that I'm doing as a full-time student at Gordon-Conwell. And I realized I couldn't talk about it unless I spent some time going deep into what it means to be a child of King Jesus. Otherwise, it won't make any sense. You see, because I'm working on a master's at Gordon-Conwell in the Institute for the Study of the Black Christian Experience. And my research project is looking at the relationship of millennial black men and to the church or their lack of relationship to it. Now, I'm going to stop here a moment and pause because every time I say that, no matter who's in front of me, there is a confused reaction because I realize that when you look at me and hear what I'm doing, that the package does not fit the program. I get that. I get a lot of reaction, and there are times I'm a little confused myself, but the best way I can explain what's happening is based on the two passages we read today. I'm experiencing what Paul did with these two church communities in Corinth in the province of Galatia. I'm experiencing what it means to be a follower of Jesus, the truth that a lot of you already know, and it's this. When you give your life to Jesus, when you give up your life to him, you give up your rights to your future, the future that you think you have, the direction you think your life should take. And in fact, you give up the choice of the culture that forms you. You give up your place in it. You take on a new identity that makes you no longer fit in the world. And in fact, we begin to understand what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 11, that as God's chosen people and his holy nation, we become strangers and aliens in this world. And I have to tell you, I have become pretty strange and I feel very alien. But I want to tell you that it's not all my fault, that God is doing something in me that I frankly can't and don't want to control. He keeps opening up doors to me and say, you should walk through that door. And as I step over the threshold, I think, really? And he goes, yep, you just keep walking. And so I keep walking, and then he directs me when I ask why that door. He keeps directing me to Galatians 2 and 1 Corinthians 9 because he wants to help me understand what it means to follow his directory in Matthew 28, that we're to make disciples of all nations. Because here's the truth of the gospel. When the Holy Spirit comes on the church, it scatters and crosses boundaries and borders to go places it never expected to go to reach people in unlikely ways. It means that if you are a follower of Jesus in this world, you're going to end up sitting next to people who don't look like you, don't talk like you, are not your age, don't share your culture, and the Lord's going to turn to you and say, make a disciple of that person. And your first reaction, I guarantee you, is, no, I don't think so. They don't talk like me, they don't understand me, and I don't even like them. And the Lord says to us, 
do it anyway. But I'm not going to leave you defenseless. I'm going to teach you how to do it. There is a way to do this without just abusing people or ignoring them or doing it the wrong way. I'm going to help you move into the world because here's the truth of it. If you follow Jesus, we're going to enter in the world. We're going to be changing this world to the place where we don't belong and where it's going to be uncomfortable and confusing and out of our control. But how does he do that? How does he help us do this? Well, he starts at 1 Corinthians 9, and you have to start with this fact. You have to take hold that you are not owned by anyone or anything in this world. You are not owned by anyone or anyone in this world. As a follower of Jesus, you're owned by him and no one else. No longer shaped by the world, its culture. We're not imprisoned by its framework. We're reshaped by Jesus. And so we learn to live in the world as kingdom people. And so now we're free to serve others. In fact, Paul says, in order to serve others, we have to enslave ourselves to others. We have to give up our rights to ourselves, to our convenience, to persons that are so different from us that we do not normally care about them. But he says, no, that's what I'm doing. And that's why Ellen and I find ourselves as senior citizens in hip-hop concerts. Because God's doing something that is different, and the world looks at it and says, odd, and we say, no, actually, this is a kingdom thing. But to understand how this works, we have to look briefly at the Church of Corinth. And the Church of Corinth was this kind of a place. The Church of Corinth was a Mediterranean wild town. It was a seaport. And it was the kind of place you could go and get any kind of craving fulfilled that you wanted, no questions asked. It was the Internet experience before the Internet. You could go to Corinth and live out every sin you could think of, and it would be just fine. And the gospel came sweeping into the city of Corinth and upended everything. It upended people who were brought together. In fact, two groups of people who despised each other, who hated each other, had nothing in common. Jews and Gentiles were placed face to face, side by side in the church. And in Corinth, Paul navigates what is a multi-ethnic church, bringing people together around Jesus who literally have nothing in common. And of all people, it shouldn't have been Paul doing this. It should not have been Paul doing this. Because if you read about Paul, Paul says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a man who took pride in who he was. He was a man who felt like his lineage was something to protect. In fact, he did protect it. And in the moment of his life when he was the most furious and the most violent, God literally knocked him to the ground and said, I have a new life for you, Paul. You're no longer going to fight me. You're no longer going to fight these people you consider a threat. You're going to love them. You're going to call them to me. And over time, Paul did just that. We're used to hearing about Paul associating with Gentiles, but I can guarantee you that anybody who knew Paul, especially from his early days, would have said, that is odd, that's strange. In fact, you must be crazy. In fact, it's the same thing, the same uh, complaint that was lodged against Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, Mark chapter 3, where people said he's beside himself. That's what Paul looked like to people. But here is Paul in response to Jesus crossing boundaries and borders and bringing people to the Savior. And what happened to Paul? Well, Paul would say, it's because I died. I died. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live by in the flesh, I live by faith and the one who's loved me. Paul is no longer trapped by his culture or expectations 
or his heritage or his sins or his personality. He's be, he was once a defender of his faith, once a defender of his ethnicity and his culture. He was so much an advocate for those things, he resorted to violence against people that he thought were a threat to the sanctity of his people. That's what happens when you put too much faith in your ethnicity or your culture and it becomes your God. And I'm speaking as a white man as I watch people who look like me, Christian people, who in this present time are fighting to preserve and protect and defend an idol of ethnicity, race, and culture, which they say don't exist, but yet they're fighting to enable to protect it. It is happening all around us. Paul was once the same kind of rabid defender, but he stepped out of that battle because of Jesus' disrupted indolence. Jesus pulled him out of it and changed his ultimate loyalty to him. And so Paul put Jesus first. And Jesus led him where he wanted to go and asked him to do no matter to do for him what he wanted him to do no matter where it led him. And he does it to the point where the people who look like him not only found him confusing, but they found him a threat. They threatened to kill him because he was betraying them, betraying any sense of what it meant to be like them. But Paul can't help himself. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he's broken free to do what God has asked. And he does it because he knows he's died and risen again. In Jesus, we have to die to our sin. We know that. But we also have to die to the cultural, societal stigmas and dogmas that are the daily constraints on our beliefs about our behaviors and our self-image and our values. And when we're free from sin and from our cultural straitjackets, then we can follow Jesus where he wants us to go. It enabled Paul to give himself away so he could say in 1 Corinthians 9, though I am free and I belong to nothing, dot, 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 though I am free and belong to no one, dot, 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 though I am free and I belong only to Jesus, I can enslave myself to others. Now you need to hear me. Paul at this point didn't become something other than a Jewish man. He didn't go colorless. Paul didn't become a man without ethnicity or culture. He was able to give himself away as a man of Jewish ethnicity who knew who he was and where he'd come from, and with Jesus' help, having his public and personal relationships redefined. He was a Jewish man. He was fully aware of himself and where he's from and how he lived. But here's an important truth we need to get hold of before we can go any further, and it's this. You cannot give away that which you're not aware of. You cannot give away that which you don't own. You cannot give away yourself unless you know what you have. That is the truth of the gospel. I had a friend who was sitting in church and the pastor encouraged them and challenged them, in fact, to give away the things that were extraneous in their life, like clothing they'd never worn. She said to herself, well, that isn't, that isn't me. I wear the clothes I buy. But then someone said, well, you should go look in your closet. So she went and looked in her closet, and to her horror, she found she had dozens of clothes with the tags still on them. Dozens. Some things she'd outgrown, some things she didn't like, some things she forgot she had. She realized she did have things to give away. But unless she'd looked, unless she knew what she had, there's nothing she could have done. Unless you know who you are, you cannot give yourself away. Unless you don't know who saved you, you can't give yourself away. Unless you know how you're changed to the culture, you can't give yourself away. You have to be free enough and know yourself well enough 
that you can hand over to Jesus who you are that he might then hand it to others. And it takes joining him in his crucifixion to be released, reformed, and refined so we can be useful in his service. So there's Paul, belonging to no one. And here's the next critical step then. He uses a word that's hard in our culture. It's hard in our culture. He says he enslaves himself to others. And we have to talk about the issue of slavery because you have to understand what it means here. In Paul's time, slavery had nothing to do with ethnicity. It had nothing to do with ethnicity. You couldn't tell in the streets of Corinth or in Rome or in Ephesus or in the province of Galatia who wasn't a slave and who wasn't when you were out in the city. A majority of the slaves at that time were soldiers who had lost a battle because Rome, in order to protect itself, would enslave those people so they couldn't rise up against them. Some of those who went into slavery were business people who'd lost their business. Some were grindingly poor people who sold themselves into slavery to try to get out of poverty. There is no doubt that slaves were ill-treated, and there's no justification for it. But slavery in Paul's time was ubiquitous. It was everywhere. It's estimated that half the population of Rome were slaves, that almost three-quarters of the, the town, the city of Corinth, were slaves. Slaves were the juice of the economy. And the Romans did not consider slaves inferior by nature. They performed the work of doctors and artists and accountants and poets and tutors for their children. And it was possible then to get out of slavery. In fact, Paul says that if you can, you should get out of slavery. That's 1 Corinthians 7.21, because there were ways to get out. In fact, you could buy your way out of slavery. You could work your way out of slavery. And once you were out of slavery, because you looked like everybody else, there was no ramifications for it. In fact, there are a number of people who bought their way out of slavery and become wealthy merchants. I tell you that because you need to understand what Paul is talking about because that is completely different from slavery in America. That is not what we've experienced. a whole different animal. I don't need to tell you that. Slavery was built on economic greed. It was building lies about superiority and inferiority based on ethnicity. It was soul-destroying. And it's shaped our American culture to this day. It has. It set a tone in our nation. And it drove sin deep into the heart of our cultural life. It drove the American economy. And to justify it, slavers, white population, developed a whole philosophy based on the value of skin color and created a false theology of superiority of white over black. And what white Americans have a hard time understanding, but African Americans know to be true that the legacy sin of slavery is the ongoing cultural influence that dogs us to the day. It's our American context. It's the predominant tune of racial superiority and conformity to the myths and lies that were birthed in slavery that dog us today. It's a constant hum around us. It shapes all of our identities one way or the other. For white people, and I can speak about white people because I'm an expert, (laughs) it's a subliminal noise that we assume is simply the noise of normality. It's for us the assumed and unacknowledged background music of our lives, and we won't acknowledge the composer. It's a bass beat that directs the rhythm of our steps. We walk to its beat, and we don't even recognize its influence. For black people who are African-American, it is identifiable music. It can be turned down but never turned off. 
And when its volume is turned up, it drowns out kingdom identity. Identity that gives value to who you are, empowers gifts that are designed to be released in this world for our joy to his glory. And even when the volume is turned down, it is a constant background noise that wears you down. It degrades. Slavery's heritage is the culture of prejudice that attempts to get you to dance to its tune. It's an excruciating dance and it kills the soul. It kills the soul. It's a horrifying dance for everyone. Black people in this country and others who make up non-white ethnicities, they recognize it early in life. They see it for what it is. It's the dance of death. But we're all affected. And the evil one wants us to conform to that dance. It is his primary mode of operation in our cultural heritage. He wants us to walk to its beat to live to its tune constantly in our head. For those of you who have migrated to this country who are not from the U.S., it can feel as if I know at times you're an outsider looking in. I know that's true. You observe this twisted dance and you're unsure how it works. You'll have a different reaction to it because you didn't grow up in it. But it will impact you depending on your skin color. It's the bizarre nature of our natural national sin. We can't pretend it's not true. It is true. We mustn't think it's in the past, that somehow this question isn't applicable anymore. It is part of the devil's strategy. The devil desires that this systemic sin would provide the perfect thematic accompaniment to my broken self. He wants it to make the music of life for us. And he wants to set up a culture where it seems normal. It is so powerful. It is so endemic. At times, we don't know how to escape it, and we cry out with Paul, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Who will set me free from this culture of ignorance? Who will set me free? And with Paul, the only answer is, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the one who can do it. He is the one who can set us free. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. And so it's in church, in this place, we hear something new, that our ears are opened, that we're able to isolate the demonic beat that's drumming continuously in our ears. It's what makes the gospel so disrupted. By the Holy Spirit, he rips the headphones off our head that have been pouring the drumbeat of cultural sin in our ears, and he floods our souls with songs of love and freedom, goodness and justice, transformation and hope that free our limbs to move in a new way for life. That's what he's doing. And when we dance that dance, we get more and more freedom. We're transformed to the people God wants us to be, but this is what happens. Then we stand out in the culture. Then we don't fit. Then the culture sees us as renegades and refusing to bend to its will. And that's when we say with Paul, well, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's why I dance this way. Our dance is not the dance of the society around me. And then it gives me freedom, freedom finally to love people who are different than me that I can turn to someone who's not like me and say, I will give myself to you. I will serve you because I know who I am. I'm going to run for the prize of the kingdom. I serve in his name because he has given me hope and freedom to be who I am. I am no longer defined by a culture that wants to demean, abuse, and oppress me. I am free. 
So we become a radical community, crazy and adamant that we will not stand for evil, no matter any form it's in. And we walk alongside people who are suffering from a PTSD that results from the culture at war with them. We find a new identity in Jesus. And for me, it means I stop confusing my majority world comfort and status with kingdom comfort and home. And I learned that to be a kingdom person, I walk in this world as a stranger and alien. It is not my home. It is not my home. It is not my home. And I have to make sure that I don't confuse those things. So those who we are, those of us in Christ dying to the world, alive to Jesus, we just don't fit in. And we give ourselves away, not in a demeaning way, but in a fulfilling way, so that people can come and know Jesus and gain the confidence we've gained, the building life that God is building in us for his presence. And so then we cross boundaries and borders. Following Jesus, brothers and sisters, is a high reality experience. You have to know the truth about yourself, about Jesus, about the society around us, about the kingdom. You have to recognize the lies being told and hold on the truth of the gospel and the truth about his kingdom. It requires our joyful attention, and then we become his missionaries. It's what Jesus did. It's why he could welcome Matthew and Zacchaeus into his community, despise tax collectors. It's why Peter could go to the Roman Gentile Cornelius and go into his house and welcome him into his community when he wasn't supposed to do it. It's what the Apostle Paul did over and over and over again. And so then finally it makes kingdom sense for me and my wife Ellen in our advanced age to go to hip-hop concerts and begin to care and love about black millennial men and why so many thousands of them are not in the church. It only makes sense in that context. When I wonder what in the heck I'm doing, I remember that in Jesus' economy, the unusual thing is not that unusual. It's just not that unusual. So finally, I'm going to tell you some things I've learned about this adventure. This is what I've learned from these men who are not in the church. Here's the first thing. They don't despise the church. Men are raised in the church. But this is their impression. The church is irrelevant to their lives. It has nothing to say to them. It's not speaking to their daily pressures. It's not helping them navigate issues of race, finances, sexuality, the systemic American sins they're facing every day. They've been raised hearing about a rhetoric of justice and access and opportunity, and that's not what they're feeling. That's not what they're experiencing. They look ahead and think, there's no way I'm going to move forward. The, stacks, the cards are stacked against them, and they're wondering why we, the church, are not helping them engage that, why we're not talking about it. Now, my first reaction as a lifelong churchman, as a member of the church, as a lover of the church, is to be defensive and to say, no, no, no. We do talk about that. We care about those things. We care what happens to people. We care about injustice. But here's the truth. When you get on the other side of the wall, when you get into the Wonder Bar in Alston, when you go places where these folks hang out, you recognize our message is not getting across. They're not hearing about what we know, what we're experiencing, the fight we're fighting. As then I sat in the Wonder Bar in Austin, which you need to know we don't frequent. But when we sat in the Wonder Bar in Austin with over 200 young black men and women, we wondered who's going to reach them. Besides Caleb McCoy, 
who I would encourage you, by the way, he's dropping a new album this month. I'd encourage you to buy it. That's a little free for freebie for Caleb. But in the midst of the Wonder Bar at 1130 at night, when we're listening to a hip-hop showcase, I heard the Lord say to me, who's going to reach them? Well, what about you? And I thought, wow, that's absurd. Because it is. But you see, we're kingdom people. And it is not okay that there are thousands of black men and women in this city who feel alienated from us and this community and don't know how to get to it. It's not okay. We need them in the kingdom. We need them for the future. I need them for my grandchildren. I have two young grandsons who someday are going to need to hear from some young black men about Jesus so they can understand the kingdom. And if they don't come into the kingdom, my grandsons won't have that witness, and they need that witness. I don't have easy answers for how to do this. I don't. But I know this, that when the Holy Spirit comes upon his people, they not only break free from the sin that the society wants to bind them in, but they break free from their own prejudices and fears and in confidence in who they are as people, fully aware of what they look like, looking in the mirror and knowing they are blessed by God as they look in that mirror, it gives them confidence to reach out to people who may hate them and serve them and love them. I do not know where the Lord is calling you this morning. I don't know what he's saying to you. I don't know what he wants you to do. But I'll tell you this. He is calling all of us to take him seriously, to give our lives to him in freedom so that by the love he has for us, we may see his kingdom come to a generation that doesn't know him. I'm going to close with this. Romans 12, verse 12. Verse 1 and 2, sorry. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That is your true and proper worship. Do not, do not, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Pray with me. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we have sung today your praises. We have worshipped you. We have called out, recognized that when we praise, there is a breaking in our favor, and we feel that favor this morning. We ask you would come with power in this place to break us free from a culture that's trying to form us into its image and say no to it and yes to you so that in your hands we might be your people. To love and serve those who do not know you, to reach out to them, to go to them, to call to them so they may know the freedom that we have found in you. We thank you. We glorify you. We praise your name. Amen and amen. 